Pod Network News. Where we give you a new perspective on events happening in our world today. This is GNN. This is God Network News, episode 48. Welcome, GNN fans, to another episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. This podcast is proudly listed at podcastpickle.com. In this episode of GNN, uh, we will be continuing with our reading of chapters from the new book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. And I hope that you're enjoying listening to these chapters. And again, this is our gift to you, our faithful listeners, as a free audio book to you of this really fantastic, really exciting, new and innovative book that has come out by Brian Hogan. And again, in the show notes, you can find a hot link to where you can get your own hard copy of that if you wish. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 25. Something Breaks. The church leaders were encouraged by what I shared at the memorial service and called for twenty-four hours of fasting and prayer against the attack we had been enduring since the beginning of November. All of the leadership met for worship and prayer at an all-night gathering in the Alphonse apartment. As we called out to the Lord in unity, something happened. At three in the morning, simultaneously, we heard a thunderous crack. Everyone in the room looked up at the same instant. It wasn't audible, I don't think, but we all heard it. It was like a small branch breaking in a silent forest. We were all looking around, not sure what to do, and a new believer who had tagged along to this leader's gathering asked, Does this mean we can go home now? We all nervously laughed a little at his blunt question. Magnus suggested that we sing a song first and then go on home, so that's what we did. The attack was over. We sensed it then, but we saw it in the weeks to come. Spiritual battles still lay ahead, but the withering onslaught of November and December had ended. All of the serious hits we had taken were healed and restored in the weeks to come. The deaf girl and my firstborn son were the only permanent casualties. Both Louise and I shared a strong desire to take a trip back to California to grieve with our parents and families and allow the girls to reconnect with their grandparents. It seemed a foregone conclusion that this was the best time to take our oft-delayed first furlough from Mongolia. Our family had broken a record among the Mongolian missionary community and no one envied us. Without trying to, we had become the family who had served the longest on the field without a visit home. Other than a brief visit to Beijing, we hadn't left Mongolia since we'd arrived over two years before. Most mission agencies classified Mongolia as a hardship field and mandated regular trips out for their workers. Neither of our organizations, YWAM and Mongolian Enterprises International, had any settled policies or guidelines on this, so we'd made our own plans. Back in early 94, we had planned a vacation before our move to Erdnet. We reasoned that if we couldn't get all the way home to California, we could at least get to someplace warm and comfortable. We'd heard about an inexpensive paradise in Thailand many missionary friends had frequented. We had put our request in at an MEI staff meeting, and, although there was no policy on vacations, a brand new policy was made up on the spot. We were told that to help us bond with the culture, no out-of-country trips were allowed during the first two years. Louise had fled the meeting in tears, and I had started butting heads with the leadership. In a few days I had almost managed to get us drummed out of the mission. God had intervened at the last moment by giving Louise a revelation about what was really going on. A spirit of opposition had been dogging our steps for years and was manifesting itself again. As soon as the Holy Spirit revealed this entity, we had countered it easily. 
We had prayed and I had gone to the meeting where I was to be fired. I had requested to speak first and shared what the Lord had showed us. God had confirmed my words to the leaders, and we all forgave each other. In fact, Rick Leatherwood had been so adamant that the enemy would not win, he'd immediately launched into high gear in helping us move to Airdnet. God had triumphed, but in all the excitement, the original cause had been completely forgotten, and we moved without getting a break. In an amusing endnote to this story, we later received word in Airdnet that the entire staff of MEI, except the Hogan family, had taken a break out of country. Rick had changed the policy and discovered that all were overdue for a vacation, and had mandated a trip out. We hadn't had another chance to go anywhere after we got to Erdnet. Magnus and Maria had badly needed a visit home to Sweden, so we had been left in charge for most of the summer of 94. We hadn't wanted to travel while Louise was in advanced pregnancy, so an autumn trip had been out, and then we'd been busy with a newborn when winter had arrived. Now, with losing Jedediah, taking a break seemed the most sane and logical course of action. We and everyone else assumed that we would be headed home to grieve and recoup as soon as it could be arranged. Throughout the whole period following that hideous Christmas, both Louise and I were conscious of an almost overwhelming desire to be with our parents and families. From a ministry angle, it made a lot of sense as well. To break out weeping when folks come over to be discipled just isn't very uplifting. We had the funds. Our supporters had given generously, and the Southern Baptist workers in Ulaanbaatar had taken up a collection. We were honored, humbled, and blessed by their large gift. As we began to make plans and to talk about how to buy tickets, an unexpected word came from God. I began to pay attention to a nagging and growing impression that we were not supposed to leave Erdenet at this time. It didn't seem possible the Father would ask us to stay on after losing Jed, yet that was just the thing I began to sense him asking us to do. I actually remember reminding God that we were in deep grief and incapable of being joyful witnesses. If we could just go home, I promised that we would heal up and return as much stronger workers for his kingdom in Mongolia. I was so intent on continuing to plan our break, I almost won the internal debate I was waging. I had no idea the secret weapon God held in reserve. As we were drinking precious real coffee one morning, Louise casually mentioned she'd been feeling we were supposed to stay on in Erdnet and walk through our grief in front of the Mongolian believers. I was floored. Louise had been dying for a respite from the harsh life we led in Mongolia since before we had moved to Erdnet. As soon as she voiced what she had been hearing, I knew it was from God. There was no way for this to come from Louise's flesh or human desires. As we talked about it, we cried, knowing it would be several more incredibly hard months before we could see home. We shared what we were feeling with Magnus and Maria, and they confirmed that they also had been hearing this, but they couldn't very well ask us to stay. We had needed to hear it from God for ourselves. So... We did our early and heaviest grieving in Erdnet. We wept in front of guests and visitors, at church gatherings, and at home alone. It was embarrassing and awkward, as Mongolian culture does not encourage display of emotion. I often wondered why God wanted us to go through this here. It didn't seem to be helping his cause. I would not get any insight into this for some time. The day after Christmas, I sent a fax out as a response to the faxes and calls we were receiving from all over. So, how are we doing? It's like the guy said in Sleepless in Seattle. You get up, remind yourself to breathe in and out. We're all going through grief, in different ways and different stages. Alice doesn't fully understand death, but misses Jed. Melody has sobbed, denied has been flippant, wild, and stable, depending on the moment. Molly is hardest hit. It breaks your heart to hear her racking sobs. She is experiencing empty arms in a terrible way. She and Jed shared a special bond since the day he was born. She could often hold and calm him when even Louise couldn't. She's dealing with her grief, though, not stuffing it down. Louise has managed to stave off guilt and accusation, and deeply mourn the loss. We are binding her breasts, which heavy and full with milk, are a constant reminder. The tears come in waves. Sometimes you almost forget for a bit, and then you feel guilty for not crying. I find myself mourning the baby that we had that I want to hold, and the boy that I will never play with, and the man I will never have for my friend. We all went to the Christmas service last night. 
Over 700 Mongols packed the largest hall in town. The Christmas play caused us both to weep. My mother had just asked us in her letter if Jed would be the baby Jesus in this play. Instead, Jesus is holding our son. A few weeks later, I wrote to our friends and support team. We are doing very well. Our faith is unshaken, and we are testifying to God's tender care. He always does the most loving and right things for us, and to us. Yea, though he slays me, yet I will praise him. We are passing through the stages of grief, and God in his mercy seems to time the hardest times of one for the strong times of another. We have been drawn very close as a family through this loss. Two visions have encouraged us greatly. Magnus's vision of Jed at about five years old, playing with Jesus, and Rick Leatherwood's vision of Jed as a fine, strong man in the prime of life and health, exceedingly beautiful. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 26. Faces of Grief. The year 1995 began in much the same manner as the previous year, and yet everything seems so different from just a year before. Once again we saw the new year in around our kitchen table with Lance Reinhardt. We forged a tradition that would become a yearly ritual during our stay in Mongolia. New Year's Eve was always with Lance, and we'd dent the chalked ceiling in our kitchen with a cork from a bottle of Russian champagne at the stroke of midnight. Thus, there is a slowly growing array of scattered indentations on our ceiling, with the year penciled in beside each. It was both sad and odd to reflect that just a year before we had been happily chattering about plans to move to Erdnet and were not even pregnant, and now, a year later, the three of us were back together, both sadder and wiser. We had a much clearer view of the cost that comes with our calling. That Brian of a year ago seemed like a complete stranger to the grieving dad I now was. As we moved through January and February, we began to discover grief as a force we knew nothing about, nor did anyone around us seem to have anything useful to add. Bizarre and unexpected side effects appeared. Louise had been noticing that her sense of taste had diminished to the point where all her food tasted like sawdust. Emotionally, the well seemed to run dry at the same time. She was deeply sad, but couldn't seem to really cry. She felt like something was stuck in her, and she lost the ability to be passionate about anything. I'd noticed she'd quit voicing any opinions about plans I made. This shocked me. Louise had never been a yes woman, or shy about her opinion. This new Louise worried me, even if it did make my life easier. I continued to grieve, too. I would burst out in tears at random moments. It wasn't that others would rub my wound. It was an internal thing. I would think of Jed and something I'd never be able to do with him, and just start weeping over what I'd lost. Each girl handled the loss in her own way. Friends sent us a couple of books on grief, and we knew everyone goes through grief differently, so we just tried to support each child as best we could. Molly grieved most like me. She would cry as it hit her, and then recover and move forward. Alice seemed not to get the death thing at all. She made comments from time to time, but mostly just slid back into being the youngest child. In some ways we wondered if she was relieved that the weird and unwelcome displacement from her position as our baby had ended so quickly. Melody was all over the map. There is no order to her grief. One moment she'd do denial, flip a switch into wild sobbing, and then just as quickly she'd be running around the house as if nothing had happened. We worried she didn't seem to be dealing with her feelings, but shoving them away as soon as she could. Louise and I just tried to parent each through this as best we knew how, sharing our trust that their brother was with the one we all wanted to be with, and that we would be together again some day. We also made sure that we spoke as a family about all of the wonderful ways God was meeting our needs and caring for us. We were feeling His presence and help in ways we never had before. With very limited phone and fax service and no email availability in Erdnet, we had to rely on the Mongolian post office for communication with our home support network. This proved both a blessing and a curse. Throughout the winter and spring, every trip to check our mail at the post office was like negotiating an emotional minefield. We were encouraged and comforted by the deluge of letters and cards we received from people reacting to the letter I had written on Christmas Day. 
The impact it had had on people around the globe was phenomenal. As people shared their grief and reactions with us, we were strangely encouraged. One family read the letter while driving and had to pull their car over to scream and weep as a family. As terrible as this was, Louise and I were blessed by their response. To know others felt it so deeply filled a need in us. It was horrible. It deserved some screaming, some reaction. Mongolian culture does not allow for speech about the dead after the funeral, and all our Mongolian friends had gone silent on us just as we were really feeling a need to talk about what we were going through. Hearing reactions and shared emotions from friends abroad helped us process the things we were feeling. We began to understand the power of grieving with those who grieve. At the same time, many of the packages and cards we opened just ripped open our wounds. We discovered an unforeseen trial of living in one of the Earth's most remote places. Because the mail was so slow and unreliable, along with sympathy cards, we were still receiving new baby congratulations and even Christmas gifts for Jed. Many of my birthday cards and gifts came bearing wishes for the father of a new son. Our emotions were dragged all over the map by each day's batch of mail. If we'd been going through this at home, we'd have never had to open and read Christmas and Congrats You've Got a Baby Boy and Sympathy Cards all in one sitting. We would actually wait some days until Maria could come by before wading into it, unable to face it by ourselves. We took to sorting it out by postmark to try and get some clue as to the contents and cut down on surprises for which we were unprepared. We found some comfort in stepping quickly back into most of our church and team responsibilities. I handed over the Russian congregation to Ruslan and Svetlana. I had been leading it with the help of Ghana, our friend and Russian-English translator, since April the year before. I was unable to meet this small fellowship's needs. The Russians were so different from Mongolians. Where the Mongolian believers were so open and eager to embrace anything you taught them, the Russians tended to process everything intellectually. It took a group argument before a simple biblical truth could be accepted. I spoke almost no Russian, so I was left out of these debating sessions. Ghana would be so offended that they seemed to be disagreeing with me that she would jump in and rebuke them in fluent Russian. I would sit there listening to a babble of raised voices for maybe five or ten minutes. When it finally resolved, Ghana and the church would all look to me to continue again. I'd ask Ghana, Did we win? Oh, yes, she'd reply, smiling, and we'd go on with the teaching. Even though this seemed to work, in an odd way, I believed a cultural insider could lead the small church better. I couldn't tell whether the things they did, religious things, were merely cultural form or whether they carried non-biblical meanings. I was trying to be sensitive to a culture I hadn't learned through a language I didn't speak and knew I was in over my head. Rather than add neglect, to this already troubled mix, I turned the group over to Ruslan without any transition. The timing of their arrival a couple of weeks before Jed's death was pure Jesus. And the handover worked like a dream. Ruslan immediately corrected a few small things I had been reluctant to address, and because he spoke as a Russian, he had the knowledge and authority to pull it off. He and Svetlana also brought an experience of faith and triumph and financial provision that encouraged the believers. As a worship leader, Ruslan offered far more than I. Ruslan came to our apartment regularly for English lessons with Louise. Svetlana was already semi-fluent. She was seven months pregnant with their first son. They'd just marked their seventh month of wedded life. The Russian church tripled in size under Svetlana and Ruslan's direction, and they opened a Sunday school for twenty Russian boys that Melody enjoyed attending. Ruslan reported, I love children's. I'd spent eight months concentrating on training the Russian believers to simply obey Jesus' basic commands, and that formed the foundation of their life together in Him. I had also baptized them, and that, in the minds of these disciples, gave me an enduring father's role in the life of their church. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 27. Flexible is too rigid. Another kind of unwelcome surprise arrived with our mail. An international Christian news magazine carried a blurb about the church in Erdnet and our team in their January issue. The report paired the name Brian Hogan with the word missionary. Even with religious liberty guaranteed by the Constitution, the situation in Mongolia still warranted more discretion than this. This well-meant publicity jeopardized the papers of all our team in Erdnet.
All we could do was ask our home team to pray that God would protect the work and make certain eyes blind to this publication. Our yearly contract with Monar Architectural Company was coming due, and Mr. Orgill, the boss, was eager to renew for a third year. The English classes I'd been teaching in Airdnet had proved very lucrative for the firm. We had been discussing several other small business startups as well. All our plans hit a major snag when the Ministry of Labor unexpectedly denied our application for a renewal of our visa. They said Monar had no business placing foreigners in Airdnet since they had no Mongolian employees there to supervise me. The Ministry of Labor canceled our new contract when Monar submitted it, leaving us only a month to secure a new visa. We suspected the magazine publicity had brought this upon us. In any case, we suddenly found ourselves with no source of a visa, and therefore no clear way to stay on in Mongolia. We weren't the only ones on the team experiencing visa problems. Svetlana and Ruslan were to secure a work permit, and they were dealing with a first-born son who was determinedly coming into the world, ready or not. Baby Reuben ended up appearing on March 6th, before a visa ever did. Magnus and Maria had received a miracle the year before, when the Foreign Language Institute had pulled an impossible visa for Swedes to teach English out of a hat. They had been informed then that this year's visa would be completely impossible. There is no way you will stay another year. And yet, as we all labored over this in prayer at our team meetings, God did the impossible, and the labor ministry granted their visa to the utter mystification of the school and local police. After exhausting all the possibilities of continuing on with the company I'd been working for since our arrival in Mongolia, I figured it was time to hunt up a new employer. If I couldn't manage to land a new contract, then our upcoming furlough would be quite a bit longer than we wanted. We had folks all over the globe praying. With less than a week left in Mongolia, I landed an interview with a top manager in the all-powerful Erdnet Concern, the largest copper mine in Asia, and Erdnet's reason for existence. He began my interview by explaining to me that the company was a Russian-Mongolian joint venture, and they had no other nationalities working there. This would make me your first American, I countered. He asked what I was capable of doing, and I said, anything you need. I rattled off some ideas like proofreading their contracts in English, fixing computers and training their users, teaching English, etc. We had quite a tussle over whether I had to work full-time, like all their other employees, or half-time, as I insisted. I convinced him there was no way I could homeschool my children, shop for food all over the city, and work full-time. It just wasn't practical as an expatriate without extended family support. He ended up hiring me as a manager in the mines commercial department. I had no idea what the job entailed, but the contract came with a letter of invitation. We would be able to get our visas and re-enter Mongolia. We'd seen again and again that there was no way to hang on in this land without being as flexible in our plans as a jellyfish. All through the excitement of securing future secular employment, I continued to teach and lead in the Erdnet School of Discipleship. Our first group of students was enthusiastically plowing through the lessons and materials we had prepared. I taught the weeks on biblical basis of missions and history of the world Christian movement early in the school, then sat in on several weeks taught by guest missionaries from Ulaanbaatar in Sweden, and finally taught on culture during our last week in Erdnet. The students were excited about finishing the classroom phase and spending the summer months in outreach trips across Mongolia, the first Mongolian short-term missionaries. Before we'd moved up to Erdnet, Louise and I had become quite close to Lance Reinhardt. Lance had done his YWAM missionary training with us in Oregon, but it wasn't until we were all struggling to adopt to a new country that we really deepened our relationships. Lance boarded with a motherly Mongolian woman who worked for the director of the school where he taught English. Her son was also living at home, and he and Lance were both in their early twenties. In this total immersion environment, Lance's language proficiency soon surpassed most foreigners. Even so, he would frequently get hungry for familiar faces and food, and show up at our apartment in search of chocolate chip cookies and peanut butter. These visits were fun for all of us. We'd play games, have discussions about everything from the sublime to the ridiculous, and after we acquired a toaster, we'd eat toast, a luxury in a land that lacked the concept of toasting bread. Lance would usually just pop in for a few minutes. Then, 
several hours later accept our invitation to dinner and finally miss the last bus of the night at 11 p.m. and be forced to stay for breakfast. We all enjoyed these impromptu campouts and always made sure Lance would ring his Mongolian mom to keep her from worrying. When we had moved to Erdnet, we were able to lure him up from Ulaanbaatar fairly often. Magnus and Maria saw in him what we had already recognized, quiet determination that really gets things done, wonderful ability to train and equip others from behind the scenes, and dry wet that made life in Mongolia so much more bearable. The four of us agreed that Lance was meant to be on our church planting team. Lance, however, was not so sure. We had already noticed that the more one of us tried to get him to do something, the more he resisted. I, on the other hand, tend toward artful persuasion as my first and foremost tool. It made for an interesting standoff, and after a year of cajoling, tempting, and begging Lance to move up to Erdnet, I finally gave up. A couple of months later, Lance announced he was joining our team. The timing was perfect. Lance moved into our apartment as we left on our first vacation home. He finished teaching my English classes and other projects, was hired on by the Foreign Language Institute, and had found a posh furnished apartment with incredibly cheap rent to move into when we returned. A mining executive leaving Erdnet to study in Colorado had wanted a Westerner to house-sit his fancy apartment for a year and had met Lance on his way out of town. God worked out every detail as soon as Lance made his move. As the first single to join our team, Lance was to experience a different side of missionary life in Erdnet than the rest of us. One evening, not long after moving into his own place, he answered a typically Mongolian constant knocking at the door. At the door were three very lovely young women from his English class, all smiles and nervous giggles. His Mongolian mother had trained him well, and Lance hospitably invited them in, led to seats in the living room, and set about making tea in the kitchen, wondering what they had come for. After tea was served and all the conversational niceties about health, herds, and relatives covered, the leader of the delegation, at the prodding of the other two, sat up on the edge of her chair, cleared her throat, and pulled out a piece of paper. In slow and halting English, she read Lance the reason for their visit as the other two beamed at him. Lance choked and nearly sprayed his mouthful of tea across the room. What? And the beautiful girl repeated with more assurance, From ancient times we have longed to come and be intimate with you. After a shocked silence, Lance recovered enough to tell them he was sure they didn't mean what they were saying. No, she protested in Mongolian. They had looked up each word so carefully in the Mongolian English Dictionary. Lance asked her to tell him in Mongolian what she was failing to get across in English. We have been wanting to get acquainted with you for weeks now, teacher. The teacher was relieved, but much too embarrassed to explain to the puzzled girls what they had actually said in English. Having all experienced how wrong translation efforts can be, especially those referenced solely from the dictionary, with its bewildering array of word choices, we all laughed until we cried when Lance shared this story at our team meeting. Lance's great contribution beyond the refreshment and laughter he brought was his skill in preparing and training the believers to take over things Magnus and I had been doing. The discipleship school was one of these. The idea for a discipleship training program had come to me during October of 1994. I had felt that our church's biggest liability was a shallowness that rapid numerical growth and newness of everyone's faith had made difficult to address. As I thought about what created the high levels of intensity and commitment that Louise and I had always known as normal Christianity, I realized that the Vineyard School of Discipleship where we had first met was a perfect incubator for these qualities. Surely it would be possible to translate what worked from that program into something that would fit the culture here in Erdnet. During our team meeting I began to think out loud to Magnus. We needed some structure to give training and depth to those who wanted more, training that was practical and based on doing rather than mere hearing. We also needed a higher level of commitment from students than church attendance required. We hoped a high degree of interaction with our disciples would help them to catch intensity and commitment directly from us as we modeled what the Word taught. Relationship between the students would also be a priority so they could be trained to use their gifts together in love. We knew God was behind this from the beginning. That very evening, Magnus and I feverishly planned and organized far into the night, and less than two weeks later we were sorting through fifty applications for the first school. 
We had personal interviews with all 50, and on the last day of October we started with our first 20 students. Not all that happens on Halloween is of the devil. We had contacted missionaries from Ulaanbaatar to come up and teach a week each in the six-month-long school. Most responded positively and excitedly, as what we were doing was needed in all the churches in Mongolia. There was one Bible school in the capital. However, students were removed from their church involvement, filled with information by visiting professors and pastors who knew little or nothing about the local context, and given little opportunity to exercise what they learned in practical ministry. Students were paid a stipend to attend, and this practice attracted many with questionable motives. The fruit we'd seen from this particular tree had been pretty rotten. We wanted good fruit, so we deliberately designed our disciple school to discourage the professional student mentality. No student was paid. We charged tuition. It wasn't much by Western standards, but to the people in our church, it was sacrificial. Our goal was to build income into the school from the beginning so it could continue without reliance on outside funds and without the strings such funds often entail. I also wanted to make sure we were training heads of households. In our training we had learned that this is the best pool from which to draw church leadership in most societies. Our problem was that these folks typically were already employed. We certainly didn't want anyone to quit their job to attend our school. There were too many unemployed people in the church to begin with. We decided to have class at the ungodly hour of 6 a.m. so students could go to work afterwards. For most, this meant a long trudge to class before dawn, under stars strewn like diamonds across black velvet, in winter temperatures that averaged negative 20 degrees centigrade during the day. This would keep away all but the extremely committed. We hadn't known that it was completely unheard of in Mongolia to meet for anything before 8 a.m. We found this out the first day of class. We all showed up at the women's palace just a communist meeting hall, it sounds much fancier than it is, that we had rented, only to find it dark and locked up tight. The students pounded, shouted, and eventually tossed pebbles at upstairs windows in an attempt to waken the jijur, or night watch person. After 45 minutes in the bitter pre-dawn cold, a very angry woman opened the door and proceeded to give the entire class a tongue-lashing. We meekly slipped in past her as she yelled at us. We held our first class. I found out later that Odgirl went back that afternoon to meet with this jejeur. She had calmed down and was even a bit sheepish, but Odgirl was seething. He asked what she thought she was doing that morning. Why hadn't she been up to let us in as he had arranged the day before? She replied that of course she had thought that he was kidding when he told her that we needed the hall at 6 a.m. No Mongolian people would get out of bed so early for any kind of meeting. Odgel reminded her that there had been twenty Mongolians waiting outside the door that morning. She asked with frank amazement what kind of Mongolians rise so early. He replied, Mongolians who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The first Erdenetz Disciple School exceeded our dreams. Most students were ministering in leadership positions before the school was half over. Magnus and I did quite a bit of the teaching, and Maria or Louise sat in on class with every guest speaker and hosted them in all in our homes. Six months of bone-numbing early mornings had taken their toll, and it was an occasion of both joy and relief when we hit the final outreach and presented graduation certificates before a cheering church. We thought we might be ready to do it again after another six months. The elders-to-be had other plans. They came to us and asked when the next disciple school was starting. When we told them we had no immediate plans for another school, they were shocked. It turned out that they had students already lined up. The church had been so blessed and excited by the initial school, they wanted to do another right away. I almost passed out just considering it. They refused to take no for an answer, and we ended up negotiating a second school. We thought we could make it bearable by having this one meet in the afternoons. When we mentioned the new time slot, though, the elders to be balked. Everyone thinks it must be so early to separate the true disciples from those whose faith is weak, they insisted. We managed to stave off our eager Mongolian leadership until September when we promised to train the batch of disciples they had lined up. 
we could already see this course would become a permanent discipling structure within the church and there was no way the church planters could keep running it. We needed to pass on leadership and quickly. Lance saved the day. He stepped in to lead the second disciple school with the understanding this school would have Mongolian staff in training. Lance's spiritual gifts were a perfect match for this task. He carefully modeled every step for his helpers, and after the conclusion of a school equal in impact to the first, he handed the administration of the Erdnet Disciples School over to the leaders he'd trained. They immediately started a third school, and these have continued to produce committed believers and leaders, having grown up into a full YWAM DTS in Erdnet. Even as Lance was settling into the rhythms of life on our church planting team in Erdnet, we were preparing to grow even larger. A Swedish baker, Mats Berbris, was working his way through the visa maze to join our team. His arrival, along with that of Svetlana's baby, Rubin, would bring our team roster to twelve, three Swedes, six Americans, and three Russians. Our four Mongolian elders-to-be could probably be counted, too, although we had separate leadership meetings. One of our principles of church planning was to keep the local leaders off the apostolic team, because this team is only temporary, like scaffolding dismantled as the local indigenous church takes shape. The Mongolian leadership would stay while we were going to leave. Our team wanted church members to identify with leaders from their own culture, not ours. It was equally important that these elders-to-be continue to find membership and identification with their own people, not with our church planting team. During our training, we had been warned that multicultural teams are far more stressful than the homogenous variety. We were amazed to discover we experienced no tension or conflict on our team. I have never experienced this before or since, even with same-culture Americans. God is bigger than even the mission strategy books. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 28. You deserve a break. Leaving Erdnet even for three and a half months proved bittersweet. The evening of Easter Sunday we were escorted to the train station by the deacons, elders-to-be, our team, and other church friends. We stood in a huge circle on the platform and worshipped, prayed, hugged, cried, received gifts, and confirmed our love for one another. Mongolians on the train just gaped. Those traveling that day had never before seen anything like the fellowship the Spirit brings. Melody and Molly sobbed, I don't want to leave here. We barely managed to board the train after hugging our way through the crowd who had come to see us off. Lance was filming the event on our video camera, which we were leaving behind in Erdnet. We planned, however, to take the tape home with us. Suddenly, as the train jolted forward and started to roll along the platform, Lance realized he had absent-mindedly gotten caught up in the emotion of the moment as he watched the viewfinder. He also discovered the pressing crowd of those seeing us off had pushed him off the platform and into an enclosed grassy area nearby. A three-foot-high metal fence and several meters stood between him and my outstretched arm as I leaned out of our open compartment window. In a harrowing scene, I watched him hurdle the fence, sprint alongside the train, all the while trying to eject the tape from the camcorder. Unfortunately, the scene ended up resembling Michelangelo's creation of man on the Sistine ceiling, my arm outstretching from the window toward the cassette in Lance's outstretched fingers. As the train hurried me away, empty-handed, everyone on the platform, church member and heathen alike, breathed a corporate sigh of disappointment. In Ulaanbaatar the next day, we had a smaller but equally loving send-off at the airport. The Leatherwood family and Helen Richardson sang us off in style. All too soon we were bound for Beijing. We had one night at a luxury hotel where we had great fellowship with a friend who worked at the hotel and got us the room at her rate. Our flight from Beijing to Tokyo had more in common with an amusement park roller coaster than any flight we'd ever taken. Melody and Alice were both positively green. Molly had her headphones on while she shoveled airline food into her mouth. She exclaimed, I love to fly, to loud groans of protest from both sisters. After an hour of watching sumo wrestling on the overhead TV monitors in Tokyo Narita Airport, 
and buying tablets for motion sickness at prices usually reserved for illegal narcotics, we got in line to board our flight to Los Angeles. Four-year-old Alice asked if we could take a bus instead. How about a boat? asked Melody, displaying a greater grasp of geography. This leg of the trip was much smoother, but poor Melody never did fully get her air legs. My parents and Louise's sister's family met us at our gate in Los Angeles International Airport. We had a joyous reunion in the terminal. Ah, the lost pleasures of pre-9-11 air travel. Before having to tear away to finish our journey to Seattle, where Louise's mom and dad met us. We had a wonderful and relaxing road trip down the West Coast. A short stay in Salem, Oregon at the YWAM base where we'd been trained provided another exhilarating reunion and chance to share what God had been doing. The audience at Community Night responded in a way that drove home how remarkable the events in Erdnet really were. Back on the road, we enjoyed majestic redwoods, snacks, exploring the prison on Alcatraz Island, great restaurant meals, America. What a wonderful place. People always ask if we've ever experienced reverse culture shock. Louise always responds, Hey, no problem. I grew up here. Alice, of course, didn't remember the United States at all. The sights and sounds overwhelmed her. Even Melody had some surprises. Upon seeing a garden hose in a pastor's yard, she called to her sisters, Hey, you guys, look at this thing. It's neat. I noticed a complete lack of desire for things when wandering around Walmart. None of us knew what to do with all that stuff at the supermarket. But, all in all, we fit back in just fine. We had a great visit home to California's central coast, but it was exceedingly full and often exhausting. We spoke in a different church every Sunday, ate dinner and lunch and sometimes breakfast with different families almost every meal. Somehow, we also managed to cram in trips to Arizona and Los Angeles, a YWAM conference on Frontier Mission in Seoul, Korea for me, dental and eye appointments for everyone, and corrective eye surgery so I could shed my glasses. In the cold Mongolian winters, they were perpetually frosted or steamed over. We had to bite our tongues when people would comment on how nice it was that we were taking a break. Erdnet was far more restful. When we had passed through the Northern California Redwood Forest, I had made a special point to meet and connect with a YWAM leader I had been corresponding with about church planting. Kevin and Laura Sutter were leading a ministry in Arcata, California called YWAM's Church Planting Coaches. Their mission was to train and sustain YWAM's church planting teams among the unreached. While in Mongolia, I'd come across an article Kevin wrote that was a perfect mirror for the principles our team had adopted. I wrote him, and it turned out we'd been trained by the same guy, George Patterson. Anyway, when we drove through his area, Kevin met us for a meal. We forged a bond and vowed to find ways to collaborate in the future. Kevin also invited us to attend an upcoming conference that YWAM was holding in Korea. We had been feeling somewhat separated from YWAM because of our experiences with JCS International during our first few months on the field. The JCS director had equated leaving that umbrella organization with quitting YWAM, which had agreed to be under the JCS umbrella. Kevin assured us that we were welcome, and indeed needed, at the conference on Frontier Mission near Seoul. Louise couldn't go, but I was able to join YWAM church planters and international leaders for a week of fellowship, relationship building, reports and strategy in a large woodland conference center outside Korea's capital city. It turned out Magnus and Maria and other friends from Mongolia were also there, having come a week earlier for the global mission conference, Jikowi. In fact, our Airdnet team was the star attraction of the entire conference. My spirit was especially encouraged as I shared with YWAM's top leaders, including the new international president, Jim Steyer. Jim took extra time to listen to me and assured me over and over we were still YWAMers, regardless of our status with the JCS. I made new friends, caught up with old ones, talked about our post-Mongolia future, and cemented our relationships with our YWAM family. We were encouraged to consider ourselves to be working with YWAM on an international level and Mongolian Enterprises International within Mongolia. Everything was perfect after my mouth recovered from that first bite of kimchi, extremely hot pickled cabbage served with every meal there. Louise also received healing through a side trip she was able to take alone. 
One of our sending churches, the Twin Cities Vineyard, was taking a group to speak and minister at the airport Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Toronto, Canada. A move of God had been taking place there for over a year or so that we had been hearing about in far-off Mongolia. Louise was invited to join this group. She tried to tell them she felt like she had nothing to give. Her grief over Jed had turned into a numbness that was robbing life of all its flavors. Everything still tastes like sawdust, she told me one night. She didn't feel that she could pray for others when she was so needy of a breakthrough for herself. The ministry team dismissed her objections. Here is her account. The second night we were there, I prayed for many people. Then one of my fellow teammates prayed for me. The presence of the Holy Spirit was so heavy I found it hard to stand. The Lord spoke to me and told me he had been saving all the tears I had cried in the last two years, and he was going to pour them out on me in laughter. I laughed from the gut. Then I thought of specific times I had cried in Mongolia, and I laughed. I remembered the frozen tears on the day we buried Jed, and I laughed and laughed. I said to myself, this is not funny, and I laughed again. The next day, another team member prayed for me again. This time the Lord showed me he is raising up an army that will laugh in the face of the enemy. I remembered all the battles we fought last year, and I laughed again. God had indeed turned my mourning into dancing and his joy into my strength. The last night I was there, I had the opportunity to share what the Lord had done for me in front of the whole assembly, numbering a few thousand people. They heard how God is moving in Mongolia. I am looking forward to getting back to Mongolia with the blessings stored in my earthen vessel. During our time in the USA, we really missed our team back in Erdnet. The relationships had become so tight. They had become our family in such a real way. Knowing we were headed back made the absence easier, but we began to anticipate the pain of a future goodbye when we would leave Mongolia for good. When I saw them in Korea, Maria filled me in on how the church was doing in our absence. The mother congregation in Erdnet now had over 350 attending the big celebration service. Our church had, in the previous year, planted its first daughter church in the county seat, 60 kilometers from Erdnet. Now that daughter church in Bulgan had planted a daughter church in another, even more remote town, a granddaughter church. This furlough was even more than we had hoped for. The Father had come through for us and fulfilled desires and needs we weren't even aware of ourselves. Of course, you could never see everyone you want to see or do everything you'd like to do, but we tried. Somehow, after extending our time in the States by an extra month, we felt refreshed and ready to return to Erdnet, even filled with a sense of anticipation. Louise and I wondered, what will God do this year? Our team had already begun to discuss the timetable for handing things over to Mongolians and leaving. Our tentative planned withdrawal was a year away. The goal was to hand the church over to fully trained Mongolian elders and disengage the team from the church at that time. We arrived back in Mongolia on July 15, 1995, after a three-day journey via Tokyo and Beijing. We were all looking forward to getting up to Erdnet and seeing our team and church again. I was also intrigued about beginning my new work at the copper mine soon after we settled back in. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 29. Back to our little house on the steps. I woke up knowing the buses wouldn't come. Friday morning on the last day of our church's summer program, the departure back to Erdnet was scheduled for noon, and I knew it wouldn't happen. Other than this disturbing awareness, it was the perfect final day to our week-long stay at the holiday camp on the Seleng River, about two hours north of Erdnet. Family camp, as the believers called it, had been an ideal way for us to jump back into life in Mongolia, and we'd left Erdnet for camp soon after our return to town. The weather was perfect Mongolian high summer, middle to high 80s, light breezes, few bugs, distant clouds. Our morning meeting was the most powerful of the week. People were standing on the benches and dancing in worship. Ruslan gave an impassioned message about sharing the good news, and people were healed. One older woman had walked in on crutches. When we prayed for her, she fell down under the power of God. God told me, I am going to use this woman as a vessel for my glory. When we helped her up, there were no signs of any healing except on her face. I doubted the word God had given me, so he repeated it. I whispered it to Magnus and let the service continue. Later, during testimonies, this woman came down, 
walking and dancing. God had healed her legs. The church went nuts. Then Magnus shared my word from God, and she began to weep with joy. It turned out that she had been one of the top national dancers under communism. She had been part of a cultural exchange program with North Korea, chosen to bring Korean dance back to Mongolia. The mine in Erdnet had hired her and brought her family here to perform in the city's culture palace. Then an injury had ended her career, income, dancing, walking, everything. Her former patrons had subsequently abandoned her, and she'd sunk into poverty and despair. She had met Jesus only weeks before, and now she had new legs. She will now glorify the Khan of Khans as a vessel for his glory. When this meeting finally ended, and no one wanted it to end, we found the buses hadn't arrived. When we sent someone out to call about this, we discovered that the man who had our money had never given it to the bus company, so they weren't sending any until they were paid. Maybe tomorrow, the leaders assured us. I decided to walk to the nearest town to get a car for the three families with children, mine, Svetlana, Ruslan, and their new baby, Ruvim, and a single mom with two kids. Lance came along to keep me company on this five-kilometer march. It was a warm summer day, and we took nothing with us. We stopped at Gares along the way to ask directions, perhaps borrow horses, and eat. Feeding guests is mandatory at Gares, and we were fed tareg, which is yogurt, currants, arul, and urum, dried curds and clotted cream, and cups of water with complete ecosystems included. The silliest episode occurred as we were trudging down a track in a particularly deserted stretch of countryside. A Mongolian man in a dell, the national dress, rode up on a horse. I asked him, in Mongolian, how far away the town of Hialgalant was, and the conversation went something like this. Are you well? How far is Hialgalant? Ryder greets us and replies to my question in Russian. We are not Russians. More unintelligible Russian in reply. Lance says, We don't understand Russian. I say, We speak Mongolian. Ryder finally switches to Mongolian. What's your name? My name is Brian. My name is Lance. How far is Hialgalant from here? Five kilometers. I am looking for paint. Do you have any paint? Did he say he's a painter? I think so. In Mongolian, what? Do you have paint? No, none. Lance and I ex exchange puzzled looks. Where would we have paint hidden? Do you want any fish? No, not right now. Um, we need a horse or car. I don't have any. Okay. Bye. In English, what was all that about, Lance? I don't know. I guess this is a trade road. Anyway, we finally arrived in the tiny lumber mill town and found that an acquaintance of mine with a car had just driven in for Hialgalan's 20th anniversary celebration, festivities conveniently beginning that evening. The driver had been night watchman at the bank where I'd taught my English class. I'd once arrived for class to find him with a torn shirt and the bank floor spattered with blood. Without a weapon, he had just violently put two bank robbers to flight. This guy was huge. Thankfully, he was one of the good guys. He agreed to drive us back to camp and pick up the families needing to get back to the city. As we made our way down to Erdnet in this overcrowded taxi, we saw the buses lumbering slowly along in the opposite direction to pick up the 150 people still stranded. By God's grace, just after midnight, everyone was home from camp. Back in town, Magnus shared a conversation he had heard at camp through the thin cabin wall. Molly, six years old, and Alice, four, had been quarreling in the next room. Magnus was trying to prepare his Bible lesson, but his ears tuned in to the following exchange. Molly, so what are you going to do about it? Alice, I'm going to pray. A fairly long silence followed, during which Magnus pasted his ear to the wall. Molly, breaking in, well, what did God say? Alice, God told me to tell you to shut up. For the next several minutes, Magnus struggled to breathe as he stifled laughter. 
We had barely returned to Erdnet City when the Jesus Festival was upon us. The impetus for this event had come from the outside. A team of Germans was coming to town for a month of mercy ministry among the poor and asked our church to help them culminate their outreach with a large evangelistic meeting. Their help international director was flying in from Germany to speak. We had been impressed with this group through shared ministry experiences and happily agreed. Meanwhile, the Lord was working a wonderful reconciliation between our team and the American ladies who had been sent from Minnesota to Erdnet almost a year before to set up a church and Bible school. Relations between us and the American ladies had not begun on a very good note. From the time they arrived and immediately tried to deceive us about their intentions, the two teams had viewed one another with distrust. But God was at work. Ruslan and Svetlana worked quietly on developing relationship with the other team. Eventually, they reported to our team that the American ladies wanted to have us over for dinner and make things right. They were very lonely and had undergone huge amounts of culture shock. Mongolia was working its magic. No, the Holy Spirit was working at bringing unity to God's people, using Mongolia as his tool. I'm not sure whether Ruslan was confused or brilliant but it was clear when our entire team showed up at the ladies' apartment that they had not been aware of the invitation they'd issued us. They scrambled to find food while we glared at Ruslan. Yet somehow a meal was served, hearts were bared, and repentance and forgiveness flowed from both sides. As real relationship grew between the two teams of missionaries, we all agreed it was imperative the two churches work together and without competition in reaching our city. As we talk, we learned their pastor from Minneapolis was leading an outreach team of Americans in the same week of the German meetings. This town was not big enough for the both of them. Or was it? God impressed all of us that his name would be most glorified by a joint effort. A huge two-day outdoor festival was planned, featuring the German leader teaching one day and the American woman pastor teaching the next. Before and after would be three days of teaching in indoor venues. We let the Germans and Americans know, and they agreed to cooperate. The Mongolian church leaders went to work on the permit process. This part was hideous. To use any outdoor venue meant getting permission from just about every official in town, and 90% of them were openly hostile to Christians. A lot of prayer and daily visits finally secured us the Nadam Stadium, a venue nearly sacred due to the cultural importance attached to the summer Nadam Festival. We rejoiced until the stadium boss told us we couldn't touch the grass. The stadium was completely covered in grass. So we started over. We at last got a green light to use the soccer stadium, which had more seating and was located right behind the sports palace in the center of the city. A day before the festival, we found out the copper mining company, my employer, owned this field. We had neglected to secure their permission. They were furious. Neither the police nor City Hall had mentioned this as they gave their permits. With great difficulty, we resolved this new roadblock. The morning of the festival, the American team arrived in town without police permission to be there. Magnus told them that without this permit, they couldn't lead in any outdoor meetings, as this would endanger the believers with the already fuming police who thought our church had invited all these foreigners to town. Their pastor assured Magnus that she could get the police to permit them to minister because she'd forged a relationship with them last summer. She went to the police and they informed her that her team had to leave town on the evening train. They were welcome to return once they had been issued travel permits. This woman had a problem with her temper and exploded. You can arrest me, but the Holy Spirit has sent me to Erdnet and I am not going anywhere. The police responded by promptly canceling the festival, scheduled to begin in just three hours. Our leaders went again to the police and finally convinced them that these Americans were not from our church, had not been invited by us, and would not be in the festival, and were on their own. The police finally grudgingly allowed the festival, but with no foreign involvement whatsoever. So an hour before the festival began, the whole thing fell onto our church, including all the speaking. The Germans were out, and so were the Americans. Police, citing safety concerns, were swarming the stadium to make sure no foreigner even left the stands. The Mongolian believers were scared but determined to pull it off. The German evangelist Walter Heidenreich was fantastic. 
He laid hands on Zorgo, our most gifted evangelist and leader of our daughter church in Bulgan, and asked God to pass on his anointing to Zorgo. Walter then declared, This is what I came here to see, Mongolians being raised up into ministry. The worship band arrived, all dressed in Dells for the first time. We were so excited to see this decision the Spirit had helped them to make. Early on, we'd urged traditional dress on the leaders, and they had reacted strongly against our suggestion. The Dell is for bumpkins. I'd look like my grandmother. Now they had heard from God to have their moms and grandmothers make Dells for them. There was a palpable sense of honoring their elders and their culture that no one had seen before in these city kids. Worship was wonderful, and the stands quickly filled with 1,700 Mongolians. This was the largest Christian meeting in the history of our church, and maybe of the church in Mongolia. The drama team performed, and when Zorigo preached the gospel to over, over half of the crowd, responded and received prayer. The second day went much the same, with about 1,500 attending. This was exactly what God had been planning all along. We wouldn't have thought to plan such a huge event if these foreign short-term teams and speakers hadn't prompted us. Then God, in his sovereignty, gave the whole meeting to the Mongolian believers, and the results were spectacular. He tricked us into organizing the whole thing so he could give it to his church. The Mongolian believers experienced a terrific surge of faith, confidence, and release through this event. Even the teams from the West were excited by the results of the police department's prohibition. The church made a huge leap forward, ready now to stand without foreign support. The police themselves were impressed by how culturally correct this event was. The chief of police called our elders to be in and told them he was impressed with the Christians and could see why many Mongolians were now turning to this way. He also marveled that there had been no drunken brawls during the events, something he declared to be impossible in Mongolia. He told them our church could do anything it desired in Erdenet from then on. Meanwhile, our family was still getting settled back in again after our furlough. There was plenty to do in the church. Seventeen of our more committed leaders had left for Bible school in Siberia the same day that we had arrived back from America. I was shocked the decision had been to send them away for training when our disciple school was well equipped to train leaders right in the context of the church. Train leaders locally was one of our team's New Testament church planning principles. Not only does it keep the leaders grounded in what God is doing among their people, but it facilitates modeling from the church planters to the emerging leaders. Disciples learn ministry skills best by watching and imitating a discipler. It was going to be hard to model things for these disciples in Siberia. Magnus told me those going felt like they had heard clearly from God about the Bible school opportunity, so there was really no point in second-guessing things as their train headed north. There was so much to do in seeing new folks raised up to replace these folks and the ministries left leaderless. At home, we were restarting our home school. I was teaching Melody fourth grade, and Louise taught Molly second. Alice even had a few preschool books this year. We were beginning production on our new cottage food industry, making our own cheese and jerky with supplies brought back from the States. Keeping a varied, healthy, and appetizing diet in Erdenet kept us hopping. We had returned to find our flat under a cloud of bureaucratic doubt again. Sukbat, our nemesis at the government housing office, always on the prowl for bribes, actually grabbed our house book, or deed, and refused to give it back to anyone but the original leaseholder, a nomadic shepherd who was not to be found. These constant struggles were wearing us out, spiritually and physically. Our new visas were also being contested in Ulaanbaatar, and we were, for a time, illegal aliens. My new employer, the Erdnet Concerned Copper Mine, assured us that this would shortly be resolved, but the situation weighed on us. We did get encouraged when Magnus, Maria, and Lance were granted miracle visas that had seemed impossible just a month before. Touch my 
Something more. 